Hello, and welcome to Stern Chats. I'm Heather Rosen-Konowitz. And I'm Sershti Chandra. For today's show, we have the pleasure of speaking to the incredible Professor Susie Welch about her new MBA course titled Becoming You, Crafting the Authentic Life You Want and Need. Professor Welch has had a fascinating life journey herself. Professionally, she has been a reporter, a Harvard Business School Baker Scholar, editor-in-chief of the Harvard Business Review, a consultant, and a New York Times bestselling author. Personally, she loves being a mom, both to her four children and, of course, her dogs. In her course, Becoming You, Professor Welch helps students explore and plan for their own life dreams. Given how much she has accomplished in her life, I can't imagine a better person to teach this topic. I'm so excited to hear what she has to share with us today. So let's dive in. Well, welcome to the show, Susie. Thank you so much for being here with us today. Delighted. So we are here to talk a little bit about you and this course that you've created at Stern. This class is about crafting an authentic life and career. And so I want to start with your story. What has your authentic life looked like, both with your personal and professional experiences that have led you here today? Mm. I was born in Portland, Oregon, and and I was raised by two marvelous hippies. Uh, my mom was an artist, and my dad was an architect, and they were. I had a big, uh, happy family, um, and they were very interested in art and music, and it was really kind of a 1960s vibe. Uh, the reason why I mention this detail is that the one thing that my life growing up did not involve in any way whatsoever was business. I mean, it was like I didn't know what business was. You know, I didn't know about money because we didn't have very much of it. And I think that's one way to really learn about money is to just to have uh, it not be a part of your life. And we had good times and we had bad times. Um, we all worked jobs very early. And my life was kind of bumping along um, until uh, one of my teachers approached my parents in high school and said, I think you need to send Susie away to school because we are not sure what to do with her precocious mind, I think. And my parents were like, really? And they, the teacher suggested to my parents that they send me to the boarding school Exeter. And my parents said, okay. So I went and it, there weren't very many women there. It was the second year that there were girls there. And I was incredibly lucky because the girls that were there, we all became incredibly close friends and remain friends to this day. But also there were a lot of opportunities athletically because if you tried out for a sport, you got on it. And I then learned that I was actually uh, pretty good at sports. And this was relevant because then college rolled around and I had good grades and I... I didn't really edit myself because I came from this hippy-dippy family where like, woo-woo, you wanted to do it, you just tried it. So I ended up editing the newspaper, and I was on three varsity sports, and uh, life rolled around, and time to apply to college. And my college advisor said, well, um, I think you should apply to Harvard. And I said, okay, anywhere else? And she said, no, not really. So I, wow. uh, I, uh, I applied to Harvard, and she said, we, we settled on um, Dartmouth as a safety and lo and behold, I got in, and I majored in art, and I edited the newspaper, and I continued to play varsity lacrosse, and I, I had this wonderful existence. I made a ton of friends. I'm uh, extrovert, and I made friends easily, and that was lucky because there were a lot of wonderful people to make friends with. Uh, but I continued to live in a bubble where business did not exist. And uh, uh, I immediately, after I graduated, went down to Miami to become a journalist. I wanted to be a journalist. I thought, okay, the one thing I'm good at is writing. And I loved journalism. And I, they would, somebody would pay me to write and tell stories. I had an incredible experience in Miami at the Miami Herald. 
And then uh, I was young and I fell in love with my first husband and uh, who I had met in high school at Exeter. And uh, we I moved up to Boston to follow him for his job. Uh, ladies do not ever do this. So I, but I did that. <laughs> I did it. Um, and no one said, what are you doing following a boy? But I did. Um, and I got a job at the Associated Press. And the reason why this is relevant is that I started off again as a crime reporter there. That was my area of expertise. And the business reporter quit and went to go work at the Wall Street Journal, and they had no business reporter. And so my boss called me in and said, uh, you're now going to start covering business. And uh, I don't know what, there's no analogy. It was like, he could have said to me, you're now going to cover astrophysics. And I would have had the same reaction. I was like, <laughs> I have no idea. So I went to my first press conference the next day. There was a gigantic scandal involving a bank that no longer exists, the Bank of Boston. And I went, and there was an incredible sense of urgency and, and um heightened anxiety in the room and people were shouting questions at the executives from Bank of Boston. And I honestly had not one, I, they could have been speaking Urdu. I had no idea what they're talking about. They were mentioning terms and phrases. And um, I remember at one point, Steve Prokash, who was still a famous reporter in business, shouted at the CEO something like, um, how did such and such happen? And the CEO yelled back, well, what would you check first? And Steve Prokash said, the CDs. And I was like, the CDs? Is this about music? I mean, I had no <laughs> idea what was going on. So I, I quickly tried to come up to speed and realized you just couldn't. You just couldn't automatically come up to speed. There was this, as in Harry Potter, uh, you know, a entirely parallel universe that I was unaware, and I could not teach it to myself. So I did a crazy thing, and then, you know, I still don't understand it. I've thought about it a lot, especially in teaching Becoming You. What was it uh, that made me think, okay, well, I'll just go to business school and learn about business? I know when it happened. I was going home on the Green Line in Boston, and I thought I had a feeling of an enormous despair washing over me. I was going to, for the first time in my life, really flunk at something. I was going to flunk at my job because I had no idea what I was covering. I didn't know the difference between debt and equity. I actually had to ask somebody, what is the difference between debt and equity? They keep talking about these two things. And they were like, are you kidding? And I was like, I'm not kidding. Ask me about Botticelli. And I was sitting on the subway and I thought, huh, this is a big fork in the road. Should I have a baby or should I go to business school? Wow. And I thought, okay, I think I'll apply to business school. I guess I wasn't ready to have a kid yet <laughs> and or whatever. One seemed scarier than the other, and I was right in knowing that having a baby was scarier than going to business school. Almost nothing <laughs> is scarier than business school, but having a baby certainly was. Um, so I applied to Harvard Business School because I was there in Boston, and my husband's job was not going to change. And uh, they called me. And they said, we've just never seen an application like yours. Can you please come in and speak to us? And I went in and I had an interview. Uh, they were perplexed by me. I was perplexed by them. Luckily, uh, they gave me a chance and I went. Um, and when I got there, I we talked in our class in Becoming You um, about what it feels like when you write with your dominant hand versus what it feels like when you write with your non-dominant hand. And while I had loved writing with my dominant hand being a journalist, I was writing in script when I finally started learning about business because I found that I loved it. And then my life really changed quite dramatically. After that, I went into business. I went to work at Bain, and it was off to the races. I Eventually, my first marriage ended, and after Bain, I went to be the editor of the Harvard Business Review, and it was there that I met my husband, Jack Welch, and, uh, and again, a gigantic pivot because I was fired from HBR um, for uh, running off with Jack. And and um, and we started our lives together, and and I started to work for Oprah, and I wrote books with Jack, and then I um, I sort of pivoted once again to become a TV journalist. Then took a sabbatical when Jack got ill, and then he died, and COVID hit right at the same time, and the world went 
under yeah. water, and so did I. Um, and when I came up for air again, I thought, I'm not going to go back into TV journalism. And I thought, well, what might I do? And a friend of mine was teaching at Stern, and I thought, might I do that? And so I did. <laughs> and here we are. Yeah, and here you are. <laughs> and we love that. <laughs> yeah, and here we are. So lucky to have you here. Thank you. I mean, for someone to be teaching a course about having a, a authentic life and, you know, following along what your unedited dream of a life mm. is, you've had that. So I think you're the, the best person we could have to be teaching us about well, that. Well, with many twists and turns, as you know, Heather, yeah. having, heard, <laughs> having heard them all, I like uh, my poor students, because there'd always be these moments in class where I'd say, I have a story about that, or uh, a little a bit of an aside here, and I would like <laughs> tell some story, um, because there were twists and turns. It was, I mean, nothing but linear, uh, and, you know, it had lots of, I mean, although, of course, like many careers in the rearview mirror, makes absolute and total sense mm -hmm. as if I intentionally knitted this scarf. So I, but I did not. <laughs> well, I have to say, all those asides were great learning <laughs> moments um, and often humorous and exciting <laughs> as well. Thank you. We'd love to hear about the course in particular. So this course is titled Becoming You, Crafting the Authentic Life You Want and Need. So could you tell us a little bit about the idea for this course? And, you know, one of the biggest themes you talked about throughout the semester was this idea of an area of destiny. Mm -hmm. So could you tell us a little bit about what that is as well? Yeah, let me tell you how the course came to be and then talk a little bit about the class. I thought, well, maybe I might be able to teach at NYU. So I uh, spoke to the dean and, um, I, you know, he was very enthusiastic and incredibly welcoming and said, you know, would you like to teach leadership? That would be a very logical thing to ask me based on what I've written about and the topics of my books and the articles that I've edited and the works that I have been, that I'm professionally known for. But I'm actually not that interested in teaching about leadership because I've just finished four years at a startup and I my conclusion after running a startup was I know less about leadership than ever before in my life and it's incredibly hard and I'm not sure that's what I want to teach but I am very interested in teaching a class that I wish I had taken in business school a class that tells you what to do with your with your degree because I have a theory that people go to business school to pivot. If your career is going along incredibly well, uh, you usually don't say, I need and want to take two years out. But if you have got a beginnings of the glimmers of what you want to do with your career, but you find yourself accidentally in a different place, business school is the best way to pivot. It really is. And so I thought everybody who's here Unless your company has sent you saying, we really need you to get better at operations. Most people are here on their own volition thinking, how can I turn slightly left or right? Um, and so I was that person. I mean, I, I was that person when I was in business school. And I looked around at other business school curriculums, and I saw that many other business schools, not many other, but other business schools had a class like this. So I said to the dean, I think I'd like to create this class called Becoming You about how you... Uh, find this intersection of your authentic values and your true aptitudes, which you're truly good at, and the areas of economic opportunity um, that you should uh, start your journey towards. And if I if I write this class right, if I create this class correctly, I'll maybe take two or three years off of everybody's journey because, you know, maybe I'll save them two years of wrong turns and mistakes. Everybody has to make their own mistakes. Everybody has the journey that they have to take. And he said, well, I, I love that idea, but you'd have to write the curriculum. Mm -hmm. And I just sort of, I look back at that moment sitting in his office where I said, oh, of course I'll write the curriculum. Um, and I, you know, I have read at this point in my career, I've written books, uh, five books and many, many 
other kinds of writings and uh, scripts for TV and so forth and so on, but I had never written the curriculum for an MBA class before. Um, but what the heck? Uh, I, I, I said, okay. And he said, great. And then that was it. And I went away to write it. And I spent the entire summer, a little bit more actually, writing it uh, and then uh, launched into it in September. Um, I described in many ways this construct called the area of destiny, which is the intersection of your authentic values, which are very hard to know. Mm -hmm. uh, your true aptitudes, again, very hard to know. And the areas of economic opportunity that um, exist, uh, again, very hard to know. I didn't think there was anything easy about this class. Um, and then I, you know, the curriculum was designed exactly around that. We spent two weeks doing values, as I like to call it, excavation. Uh, we spent two very intense weeks talking about your aptitudes using outside analytical tools. Uh, everybody indulged me taking all of these tests. We Everybody did a 360 feedback analysis. We used an outside, wonderful outside uh, provider for this, which specializes in doing 360s for MBA students. And then we had one class where we did the three-hour deep dive into the areas of economic opportunity, and we were, I was, incredibly aided and abetted by um, incredible guest speakers on that one. Uh, Dan Roth, who was the editor-in-chief of LinkedIn, and uh, uh, Catherine Dill, who uh, was the chief workplace reporter at The Wall Street Journal. She's since been promoted to even bigger job at The Wall Street Journal, and they really uh, helped us understand where the economy is going. So that's the class. And... Um, uh, we, we stuffed it all into six weeks, and uh, along with having uh, these capstone projects at the end where people presented their new areas of destiny, which was epic. Yeah. One of my favorite parts of the class was that capstone project oh, because good. it really made me think, what do I want out of my life? And you encouraged us very much to think about not only our careers, right? We are here getting our MBAs. That's definitely a focus. But what do I want for my personal life? What matters to me? And imagine that in the future. So could you talk a little bit about what that project was about and maybe what you discovered or mm. what you found to be fascinating about some of the responses you got? Oh, it was so great. I have to say, when I started reading the capstones, I I was thinking, why am I crying so much? I mean, they were really beautiful, and people really brought um, their vulnerability to this. And so one of the things we talk about a lot in the class is my this phrase I use all the time, which is your unedited dream of a life. I have observed over my, I'm 63, I've observed in many different ways, both as a career expert when I was on the Today Show, as a writer for Oprah, and being the mother for adult children, that the most severe editors of our life dreams are ourselves. You know, the people who say no to us first, are, it's often us. And I, I tell the story in class of uh, my older daughter, Sophia, who grew up obsessed with TV and in a way that Jack and I worried a lot about her. We we're like, all Sophia cares about is TV. And she would watch shows over and over again and she would talk about the people on the shows like they were good friends of hers. She went off to college and she majored in poetry. She majored in English and poetry. She loved writing and reading, but she was obsessed with TV. And one day I was visiting her at college and she put her computer on a couch and she sort of kneeled in front of it and she was watching an episode of Mad Men and I felt kind of sick to my stomach. I thought like, what will we do with this child? Mm. What becomes of her? And suddenly it dawned on me and I literally picked up the phone and I called Jack and I said, Jack, I think TV is not the problem. I think TV is the answer. And he said, what are you talking about? I said, she needs to go to Hollywood and work in TV. She needs to go be with everyone who's exactly like her. Hmm. And he was like, oh, my God, why didn't we think of that before? So after she was done uh, praying at the Shrine of Mad Men, I said to her, hey, Sophia, 
after you graduate, what do you think about going out to Hollywood and working in TV? And she said, oh, mama, would you let me? And I thought she had had that dream for so long. Wow. And she just, the world edited it for her. She thought, I've got these two fancy pants parents. They'll never think I can go to Hollywood. And you mentioned Hollywood to other people. And they say, no, you can't go to Hollywood. Hollywood is where dreams go to die. And and after the day after she graduated, she and I and her ridiculous chihuahua, who is still living at age 16, went out <laughs> to Hollywood. Um, and she sort of banged on doors. And she talked to people at, at, about very, very low-level jobs. And she talked to them about TV. And she got eight offers. Because people were like, who wow. is this idiot savant? I mean, she was, like, insane about it. She built an amazing career there for 10 years. And she rose from a casting assistant I mean, she was bottom of the barrel, and she rose to be casting director. Um, and then she came home and did a pivot. She came home when Jack got sick, and she wanted to be with him at the end. And um, and she's done a pivot. She's now working in corporate America because she had enough of the roller coaster life. But I learned through her and others that we just – the people around us edit our dreams of a life, and we edit our dreams of a life. And she had a dream of a life, and it was as plain as plain can be. Mm -hmm. And so I encourage the students in the class to ask, what is that unedited dream of life? Why have you edited it? And it's, I think it was a very challenging question for people. And so with the Capstone Project, uh, uh, by this time, we've done a lot of work together around values and aptitudes and um, areas of economic interest and, and, and growth and expansion. And I ask people to imagine a, a revised area of destiny and then to really visualize it by... Um, uh, I gave them four dates in the future, five years out, 15 years out, 20 years out, and 35 years out, where you had to write either a, a tweet or a diary entry or a LinkedIn post or an Instagram post about yourself in each one of those time frames to force you to visualize this dream of a life. And not so much edit it, because the AOD does ask you to edit a little bit, because the area of destiny you have to talk about what your true aptitudes are, okay? There's no point going to Hollywood to be in the TV industry if you just don't, if you're not good at it. We knew she was good at it, okay? Um, and there's no point um, uh, imagining, uh, you know, certain life outcomes if your values are in opposition to them. So it is a little bit edited, but it's curated, I'd rather say. And so the Capstone Project, um, students then presented these sort of four uh, sort of public expressions of what how their AOD unfurled um, in the years in the decades to come, and it was it was very moving. Uh, some of the I mean I when one of the students who wants to uh, have a career in in uh, fashion in one of hers uh, there was a slide that showed the announcement of, of her being made the name the CEO of Chanel. I have to say I almost burst into tears. Mm -hmm. I it was it was just a you know she said I feel kind of embarrassed saying this but this is this is the unedited dream of a life and so it was beautiful I know it's not your normal final project but the class in, in general was not your normal <laughs> class so. it really was such a great way to cap off the whole semester of exploration and I remember that person's presentation as well and yeah. we all were cheering I know, and, I know. and so excited oh. but you know one of the things that you did throughout the semester that really helped us there was you were really authentic and really vulnerable and told us all about these real stories of your life and how it's shaped who you are and what you care about and, you know, what you're good at and, mm. and even what you're not good about. Yes, right? I think you heard a lot about what I was not good at. I think <laughs> because, you know, here I am. I, I guess my theory going into it was, look, I am asking these students to bring their whole and authentic and vulnerable selves. This class only works if they do that. And then what am I to do? To be withholding? 
Yeah. I mean, it only works if I do it too. And I, in some ways at the beginning, I was kind of, you know, not intentionally, but I know I was kind of modeling. Like, here's how real I'm willing to be. Um, because I don't think you can do a lot of the work that we did if you're going to be at arm's length from it. I mean, and I, in the syllabus, I mean, it says right out there, you know, only take this class if you're willing to bring your, you know, your authentic self to it. And I, uh, after the first class, I was just terrified that I was going to get literally all drops. And I kept on saying to my assistant, Hallie, like, how many drops did I get? How many drops did I get? I was like, and luckily I did not get any. I was, thank God, um, or I would have like, you know, uh, cried softly into my hands because I just really was excited. Um, but it was, you know, I was trying to show in the first, in all the classes that, look, I, this work involves a certain amount of um uh, self-exposure that you have to you have to buy into otherwise it doesn't really click yeah and I think um the most impactful classes for all the students at Stern have been the ones where professors like yourself just give us your all and are so authentic with us so can genuinely say that that we love it too no I'm glad um it definitely brings out the best in us and I actually want to go back really quickly to something that you were talking about when crafting your area of destiny and it was about all these exercises that you did with the students right alongside them um, <laughs> to discover their values, yes. aptitudes, and their areas of opportunity. I heard a lot about these activities, and so I was curious if you can talk about one or two that you designed that maybe you found was super impactful for the students and maybe what you found super impactful yourself. Yeah, I'd love to. There's one uh, exercise that actually I asked, I asked for feedback and uh, almost across the board, one of the exercises was particularly powerful. And it's um, it, it comes out of a real experience I had in my life. Um, and it came up kind of accidentally. But the backstory of it is that um, my oldest son, Roscoe, was one of these kids that, you know, every parent kind of dreams of. He was a scholar athlete. Uh, he was dutiful son. Everyone was, he was just a, you know, fine young gentleman. He went to Exeter. He was a great uh, nationally ranked athlete and he ended up going getting recruited to and going to Stanford and uh, while he was at Stanford he took off like a shot and he was doing unbelievably well there and he graduated and he didn't have a job and my husband and I were like after four years at Stanford after everything we've done classic parent mode right it was about you know <laughs> you know where where's the job Roscoe and so in desperation he took a job at a at a, at, a, at a company, a headhunting firm that was literally like, anybody at Stanford want to work for us? We'll take anybody because he had no aptitudes for it, no interest in it. And so he went to go work at a headhunting firm in New York City. Well, the good news was that he had a job. The bad news was because it was in New York City, he had to live with us. So he was in the house with <laughs> us. And we watched him every day go to this job with the, like not zero passion, but like never negative 20 passion. He hated it. And he would come home at five and we would say to him from the first day, if you are working nine to five, you're not going to get an offer. You're not, they're not going to keep you. And he was like, no, they like me. And it was just a disaster. It was terrible. And one day, uh, one Friday, after he'd been working there about six weeks, he came home and he said, you know, right before we left, they gave us this assignment to do. Um, I'll get to it on Monday. And Jack and I said to him, sat him down and we said, this is a test. Everybody who they gave this assignment to is going to stay in over the weekend, and they are going to complete this assignment. You cannot get it on Monday. And he said, no, no, it's no problem. My boss loves me. And we just threw up our hands. Um, it was Monday morning, 12 noon. Jack and I are, like, uh, in the kitchen. I'll never forget it, watching news. And Roscoe comes in in the middle of the day. And we said, what are you doing home from work? And he said, they fired me. 
And I was like steam pouring out of my ears because it was so obvious. We had told him he was going to get fired. And I said to him, whose life do you want? Whose life do you want? Who do you want to be? Just tell me who you want to be. And he said, I want to be Henry Kennedy. And so he described this guy who had run this summer camp where he had worked as a boy. And I said, what is it about his life that you want? And he described what it was about the life that this guy had. And, and so I said to him, well, call Henry Kennedy right now. Call him right now and ask him if you can go work for him. And he called him, and Henry Kennedy said, well, you're very lucky, actually, Roscoe. Somebody just quit. And he went to go work for him. And this launched him into what became an absolutely perfect career for him. It took a while. That was the first step in it, getting close to the life he wanted to live. And actually, his life now is incredibly wonderful. But this moment of insane mothering rage where I screamed at him, whose life do you want? And is the genesis of this project that we do together in class where I ask the students in a calm way, I'm not screaming at them, you know, uh, I, uh, <laughs> I can I'm, I'm, that. I'm not standing <laughs> over them, screaming down at them uh, while the child holds their head in their hand as it really played out. But I say, you know, whose life, you know, write down three people whose lives you really want. Like, you don't have to ha you don't have to be married to who they're married to. You don't have to live in their exact house. But whose life would you like? And then part of the exercise is describing what it is about their, what aspects of their life do you want? And then in the final column, whether or not you have those aspects of your life yourself. And this is a beginning of a generation where you think, okay, what is this unedited dream? What is it? So, for instance, one of my uh, people that I really admire and I write down is Oriana Fallaci. She's famous. She's now passed, unfortunately. Uh, she was an Italian journalist. And what I loved about her life was a sense of adventure and uh, uh, trying new things and um, meeting. Her life included people from all walks of life. She had sort of no boundaries for who she was friends with and, and, and how she traveled and sort of how she rolled was an almost edge of recklessness. And I loved that about her. I admired her. I had a poster of her hanging over my bed when I was um, in college. And, uh, you know, what did I love about her life? Well, it was these aspects of living your life at the very edge of how large it could be. And when mm. I look back at my life, I did that. I did that. I admired her a lot, and I, I copied it, and much to the chagrin of a lot of people around me, um, because, you know, your children do not like you living that kind of life when they're young. Um, but uh, but uh, this, was this, this was the exercise. That is very, very cool. Mm. Yeah, I love that exercise, yeah, too. Yeah, people love that exercise. It's such an interesting concept to try and imagine yourself because I don't think it's one of the things that we tend to think about on an everyday basis, but such an important question to ask yourself, as, especially now, I think, as MBA 2s, we're trying to figure out what life after school looks like, and yeah. we've been in this little bubble, so it, it's great to have that um, be encouraged and that yeah. thought process encouraged. Well, just to go up to 20,000 feet on that, one of the things I say in the class is that you get to business school. Uh, MBA ones, and you're bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, and the world looks very large to you. You know, you think, I'm at business school. I'm going to learn about everything. I'm going to learn about all these different industries. I'm going to learn. I'm going to meet a lot of people. And then as the time goes on, your view gets smaller and smaller and smaller till the dangerous, you know, kind of thing is that you're an MBA too, and you're thinking banking or consulting, you know, <laughs> you know, New, New York or Boston. And it just, your view gets narrower and narrower. And sort of that, the, the, what that exercise is working on doing is just opening up your aperture again. Yeah. 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 And also helping, helping us to think past that first step. 
Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Because the area of destiny does not need to happen immediately. No. I think our generation has a little bit of a challenge with um, wanting kind of immediate <laughs> immediacy of everything. Right. Yes. Yeah. Um, and thinking longer term, you know, where do I want to be in 35 years? It's not a question I would have asked myself right. this semester if you hadn't asked me to. I also asked you to answer the question, what would make you cry at your 75th birthday? Yeah. So I'm, I'm putting you guys out there all the time. Yeah. You know? Right. Yep. Yeah. The imagining through people whose life you want. I think another reason why it was so impactful is that it's easier to think about, well, that person has a really cool life and I can easily name the things that, you know, the aspects of their life that I find so fascinating or interesting. It's harder for me to imagine myself living that kind of a life, right? It's scarier. It's, it's scary. Um, yeah. Everything we do in, yeah. in Becoming You is scary. Yeah. I mean, Becoming You is a scary class. I say this all the time. I mean, I say in class all the time, this is scary what we're doing. What we're doing is hard. If you're doing it right, it should be very hard. Yeah. Um, and uh, But everybody kind of willingly went with it, yeah. I think. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. Um, and I think, you know, we've, we've been talking a lot about the experience that you've given the students. I'm curious, when you came to Stern, you said, hey, maybe I could do that What with your friend teaching here. How has that experience been for you? What do you think teaching hmm. has taught you and maybe something that you found out about yourself or an experience that you had in the classroom that you didn't expect when you started mm-hmm. teaching? Well, I loved it a lot more than I thought. I think, you know, when they signed me up for the first time, their feeling was, we don't know if this is going to work, right? So <laughs> they were like, let's let her do it one semester. And, uh, you know, and, I, and none of us knew. And I even said to the students, this is an experiment. Let's just do this together. You're going to have to go with me on some stuff. It's my first time. So I learned that I loved it. Um, and it, you know, it kind of plays to my um, it, it, it's, you know, it's sort of right in the bullseye of my area of destiny, which is sort of a wonderful kind of uh, co-discovery with the with the students. I think that it was an interesting experience teaching this time. I, I think it will be different than when I teach in the spring because I was creating the curriculum up until the minute the class started each week because I wrote the curriculum this summer and revised it and revised it. But as I got to know the students better and as we went on the journey together, I knew that classes had to be adjusted in certain ways and I understood the rhythm of that three-hour class better and and so I think you know next time I teach I'll have had the virtue of teaching it twice before for both mm-hmm. sections and I will go into it with a different you know before each class I was like holding my breath like is this going to work I did not know because I was asking the students to do a lot of different exercises I mean we not in your section but in the other like we played industry bingo we I mean we did yeah. a lot of things that are not on the beaten path and <laughs> I had to see how they went so Amazing. Yeah. Well, I will say I've heard only great things, oh. and I've only told great things about you're this nice. class. Thank so you, I think you. you're going to have a waiting list we'll in the see. spring. Definitely. I think I have heard. <laughs> yeah, I think you're going to have things. the opposite problem, if anything. We'll see. They're going to be knocking down your door. Right. Can you teach more sections? <laughs> This has been so excellent. We have one final question for you. You know, a lot of our listeners are prospective students or current students who might have the chance to take this course. Mm -hmm. But we also have people, um, alumni, others who might never get the chance to come learn with you directly. So what advice do you have for people who fall into that latter category who might be seeking a career change or a life change? How can they explore the area of destiny for themselves at home without having the structured approach that you provide in, in the classroom? Well, I have to say that uh, there are so many incredibly great experts and professionals who are in this space. I don't know how you could actually experience this class without being at NYU at this yeah. point. You know, I, I, I think that I've explained the concept here and you can do some of this stuff on your own. I think, you know, you can write down the three people whose you, lives you respect. But there, the resources around 
building an authentic life um, are plentiful. And yeah, I, I think right. that it's it's a little, it's, in fact, there's so many of them, it's a little daunting, but I think it's worth just, you know, read a good book about it. There's so many good podcasts about it. Um, the resources are out there. Uh, you just have to be willing to stick your toe in the water. I mean, I put videos on my reels on Instagram, less on TikTok, uh, where I actually talk about my career advice and some of the stuff that we do in class. So I'm out there on social media trying in a bite-sized form to do this so you can follow me on social media, especially on Instagram, I guess, um, to hear some of it. But again, there are many, many resources. I am one of many voices of people who talk about about careers and, and crafting an authentic life. So I, you know, pick one and, and, and dig in. Well, thank you so much. My great pleasure. Thank you pleasure. so much. We've loved having you here thank today. You. Thank you. Yeah. So much fun. Thank you for yeah. inviting me. That was such an interesting conversation. Heather, thanks so much for having me co-host. Yeah, absolutely, Trishti. I'm so excited that we could do this together. It was so nice to be able to get a perspective for what the class is about, um, not only from students, but from Professor herself. If anyone's looking to take this class next semester, next time she teaches it, I highly encourage it. She clearly has so much passion for this subject, and it seems like everyone could really benefit from it. I agree. I enjoyed this class so much. I definitely grew a lot this semester, and the exercises she had us doing in class, she's not joking when she's saying it's <laughs> scary and it's hard because you're really asking yourself big life questions. What do I care about? What skills do I have? What do I need to work on? And how does that fit into what areas of economic opportunity exist in the world? So I found it really, really impactful and have recommended it to anyone I've spoken to. I really think that this is going to be one of those famous Stern classes if she keeps teaching it in the future. Oh, I'm so sure. And I'm just curious, were you expecting this course to be what it was when you signed up for it? Oh, goodness, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, it definitely ended up being more intense in a good way. Okay. It was so structured that there was a purpose for every activity, for every conversation and every class. And we were really building our kind of idea of what our future life should be as we went throughout the course. That's amazing. And so, so important. So, okay. Next on my lottery, becoming you with Professor Welch. <laughs>